Welcome to the Food Therapy Podcast, where we talk honestly and openly about mental health, diet culture, BS, and food freedom. We're your co-hosts. I'm Brittany Modell, owner of Brittany Modell Nutrition and Wellness. And I'm Lauren Sharp, owner of Empower Method Nutrition. We are food freedom registered dietitians who have struggled with mental health, poor body image, and disordered eating behaviors. We are on a mission to dismantle diet culture, normalize conversations around mental health, and empower you as you heal your relationship with food and your body. Let's get talking. Hello and welcome back to Food Therapy. We have Marcy Evans on today. I am so excited to chat with you and discuss all things digestive health and eating disorders. Marcy identifies as a food and body image healer, practicing from a health at every size and anti-oppression lens. She has dedicated her career to counseling, supervising, and teaching in the field of eating disorders. She is a certified eating disorder registered dietitian, supervisor, and certified intuitive eating counselor. In addition to her group private practice, Marcy launched an online eating disorders training platform for clinicians in 2015 and co-directs a specialized eating disorder internship at Simmons University. She has spoken locally and nationally at numerous conferences and media outlets, and she regularly communicates on social media. So be sure to connect with her at MarcyRD, as well as on her blog, www.marcyrd.com slash blog. And we will have all of that in the show notes as well. So welcome, Marcy, and so excited you're here. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for having me. It is always a total delight for me to be able to connect with colleagues and talk about topics that we can kind of nerd out on together and get excited about. And so I'm really, really looking forward to our conversation and very much appreciate the invitation to talk with you. And I was giggling to myself a little bit as you're reading my bio, I thought I should edit the end of that because my social media posting has really fallen off the past few months. <laughs> so, um, Nonetheless, still great content. <laughs> when I, when I put something out there, I put my heart behind it, but the, um, the frequency has not been what I wished it could be more recently, but yes. it's all right. So today we're talking all about digestive health and eating disorders. Can you start off by describing the intersection between digestive disorders and eating disorders? Yes, I will do my best to explain that in a concise way. It is um, a great opening question, and it is a topic that is endlessly interesting to me and a topic that I feel like I'm going to be a lifelong student trying to understand this interplay. Um, But if we back up and think about it just from like a bird's eye view, it makes some sense when we think about kind of eating disorder behaviors and even dieting behaviors. It doesn't have to be, you know, full-blown eating disorder, but even dieting behaviors where we are significantly manipulating what goes in our bodies, how it goes in our bodies and how it leaves our bodies, that is all along the digestive tract. So if we're eating a really limited diet, a really restricted diet, um, if we are eating types of foods that are what we think of as kind of diet foods that are filled with a lot of artificial sweeteners or lots of um, kind of manufactured fiber, or we're leaning a lot, you know, heavily using things like 
you know, caffeine or um, soda, diet soda, things like that. In addition to frank eating disorder behaviors, things like laxative misuse or vomiting, um, that those are things that are disrupting the natural flow of our digestive processes, even chaotic eating patterns where maybe a person goes really long stretches of time without eating and then maybe is eating all of their food in the evening because they're so hungry, um, that those are um, patterns and behaviors and habits that that can be disruptive to the digestive processes. Um, and then in addition to that, the piece that I have really become most interested in is not just the behavioral elements that I'm describing here, but the ways in which our temperament and our personality and our own mental and emotional well-being can create some vulnerability, similarly to the development of an eating disorder or disordered eating, as well as some real sensitivity to what's happening in our digestion. So a lot of what I talk about and teach about is related to um, conditions that fall under the umbrella that are called functional gut disorders. And functional gut disorders, we can think of as like, we're having a communication problem in our digestive tract between our head brain and our gut brain, where there's a, a nervous system issue. So we have this nervous system piece for people who maybe are big feelers. I have my hand raised. I am a big feeler. I feel things very strongly um, and very strongly in my body. And those of us who feel things really strongly, who may be... Um, more sensitive, highly sensing, um, outwardly oriented to relationships and sort of what's happening in the environment around us. And those of us who are more inclined towards anxiousness, that those are the vulnerabilities that, that might set someone up to be at risk for the development of an eating disorder. And that might also put someone at risk for these functional gut disorders. So we have we have not only sort of just the, the behavioral elements of disordered eating and chronic dieting and eating disorders that can be really disruptive to digestion um, and digestive processes, but then we also sort of have this, this mental and emotional component as well. Absolutely. I love the idea of, you know, head brain and gut brain and how they are so connected and even the power of stress, how that can, you know, play oh. into IBS and, you know, someone's their stomach, it really does impact how someone's physically feeling when emotionally they're feeling a certain way. Absolutely. What would you say are some of the common digestive disorders you see in eating disorder or disordered eating patients? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I have most of my career has been at an outpatient level. So I tend to work with people that while they're certainly in the throes of, of struggling with their eating disorder and their relationship to food and body, um, it hasn't been, my career mostly has not been at sort of the most acute residential sort of inpatient level. Um, and so what I tend to see are individuals who have chronically and often for a very long time um, struggle with things like heartburn, things like intense bloating, gas, and it could be constipation, could be diarrhea, could be a mixture between the two. Mm -hmm. And that, that really, those symptoms are like the primary symptoms that I'm addressing with my clients on a pretty regular basis. And um, it's, it's hard because they are kind of considered by medical providers as 
Um, not that it's not important, but not incredibly distressing in the same way that, it, you know, if somebody was to have like more extreme digestive concerns. And so sometimes people can feel like they are really suffering and that it's hard to be um, kind of taken seriously and that those symptoms are really being seriously addressed and tried to be understood and treated because, um, you know, it's bloating. It's not like you have blood in your stool or something like that, where a right. medical provider might be um, understandably, you know, a lot more alert to that. Yes. And can you explain, you know, what is causing the bloating or the irregularity when somebody has more of like chaotic eating or disordered eating or even like a, a full-blown eating disorder? Yeah, it's it's one of the things that makes this work so complicated is that a lot of these symptoms could have so many different causes and why I just have unbelievable compassion for folks who struggle with these symptoms and find them to be very painful and very distressing. So I'll name some of them that come to mind. And also, Brittany, encourage you to chime in as a clinician and, and as a provider who works um, certainly with clients who struggle similarly. Um, you know, one thing I'll name and is that there is a degree of, say, like, if we're using the example of like bloating, that is normal. That, that many people experience bloating and that we might experience bloating um, due to hormonal fluctuations in the course of a month. We might experience bloating when we have like a meal that we're not used to having or we're eating later than we typically eat. And um, for people who struggle with um, IBS, functional gut disorders, tend to experience literally in their body those symptoms stronger, it's more strongly felt. And so what can be a kind of typical experience becomes more distressing because the body is sensing and sort of sending off signals of like warnings, you know, something's amiss here. Um, and the, and the other piece being is that for some individuals, um, the meaning and the associations that are attached to that bloating and what that bloating means can also add more layers of distress that, you know, say someone who maybe doesn't have the same body image concerns or doesn't feel as uncomfortable in their body. I think of like my partner where he might be bloated and it's like, you know, he is like, oh yeah, I'm bloated. And then that's kind of the end of it. Whereas, right, you know, a lot right. of clients that I work with, there's so much meaning attached to yes. the bloating that it becomes more distressing. So I just wanted to name that out front. Um, and there are people who, for whom it's really a signal that, that something's amiss. So having a lot of bloating could be due to something like bacterial overgrowth, where someone who say struggles with constipation and there's a, there's bacteria that's kind of getting pushed into places where it's not meant to be and creating right. gas that, um, really is not meant to be there. And that would be something Thing that would be need to be medically treated either by antibiotics or there are herbal protocols. It can also be due to um, food intolerances and food allergies. There might be some foods that for some people, their body just has a bit of a reaction to. And so I, I'll never forget, I was, so I've been a lifelong dairy lover yes. uh, and didn't ever think that I had any sort of dairy intolerance. And did a big trip. This was many years ago now. And I was three weeks in Thailand where I basically had no dairy. 
And um, because they don't really eat dairy a whole lot in Thailand. And I was like, oh, maybe I do have a little bit of a dairy intolerance. Like I am, you know, not as bloated as much. I'm right. going more regularly, like not enough for me to change my eating habits at home because it's, you know, relatively minor. But, right. you know, we, we, for some of us, there are certain foods that are going to, you know, perhaps create more bloating. Um, and then what are some other causes, you know, another cause, um, of bloating can, um, be related to pelvic floor dysfunction mm-hmm. where we have maybe, um, weaknesses in our pelvic floor, um, overly, you know, too much tightness in our pelvic floor. This is kind of a whole other, you know, area that is very, very interesting. Um, so that's an area that I've, you know, learned a little bit more about over the, over the past years. Um, and as well as, you know, just those ir- irregular eating patterns for those of us. And again, I have my hand raised where we have more sensitive systems. Mm-hmm. You are going to be more inclined to be a, your digestive process to be affected by real big changes in your routine. So for me, if I'm getting on a flight and I'm traveling outside of my time zone and my eating times are like way off or when I'm yes. eating, is just really different. Um, I'm going to have more of those symptoms. And so, you know, we just have to have a lot of um, kind of softness and making room for the discomfort of like, oh, this is probably going to be temporary and it's uncomfortable. And like, just like my feelings tend to be a little bit more sensitive and require more care. Like the same is true of my digestive system. Right. Those are some of the things that come to mind. What, what have I, what have I left out? No, that, that was such a great, um, you know, overall description. And I'm curious, like someone might be listening to this and they're like, well, what is the difference between experiencing some discomfort and when should I actually act on it and act on it in the way that, you know, it, comes back to like quality of life. So for example, like you went away for a few weeks and you said, oh, wow, like this is, this is a difference, but it's not so noticeable that you were going to remove dairy or make lifestyle changes. Is there a point where somebody is feeling so much discomfort that it would be in their best interest without kind of sparking those ED thoughts? It's such a good question. I love that you asked that question. Um, because it is really, it's so tricky to know, um, it's so tricky to know what types of changes are going to have a net benefit without unintentionally causing harm. And so, um, and I want to say first, you know, what pops into my mind is if your physical symptoms, your digestive symptoms are so seriously impacting your quality of life, like you deserve more support. Like ideally, everybody would have access to a really compassionate, informed provider who could help them think through all of the many facets. Um, And that's not everybody's reality. Where I offer people a little bit of, um, a little bit of caution is when they're thinking about their digestive health, especially if this is in the realm of those functional gut disorders, is to think about addressing it with as varied a toolbox as possible. That most people, especially if they have a history of disordered eating, eating disorders, um, and not to mention living in the culture that we live in around food, the first place and only place often that people will go is, well, what do I need to cut out? 
It's something that I'm eating. Something needs to be eliminated. It's the gluten. I shouldn't be eating dairy. Um, and so it's this very blunt tool that becomes this sort of like only way to see how to address digestive um, digestive concerns. And so what I encourage people to do is to think about it in um, a much more multifaceted way where we're looking at how how is your overall mental and emotional well-being that like that actually plays a really really significant role especially for certain people probably people who are listening to your podcast um on digestive health and that you know eliminating a group of foods or a handful of foods without addressing these other pieces is likely not going to do it and appreciating that like they may need to see a doctor and do some tests that might reveal, they might all come back negative and that can be really frustrating for some folks, understandably, because they're looking for an answer. But it may be that you need to be tested for, say, like celiac disease or bacterial overgrowth. And so thinking about how you approach all of the different pieces as it relates to like, how am I, am I taking care of myself enough to be eating regularly? Like I always say to my clients, this is really hard because most of my clients have active eating disorders, but unless you're eating in a really regular way, like I would expect digestive symptoms. Like if you've gone seven hours and then you eat, I would even somebody without an eating disorder, I would right. expect there to be something digestively going on. Um, the digestive process, you know, really is informed um, by the nervous system and that regulation and, and regularity is incredibly important. But there are also electrical modes of communication in our digestive system, which is really interesting. And so um, unless you're eating consistently, the whole digestive train kind of stops that in order for things to keep moving along, like you kind of have to keep the food going in a regular, reliable, less chaotic way. So it's not just about like the individual foods. It's also about um, how you're eating and the reliability of your eating as well. So I, yes, yes to all this. And I have so many questions. So how, what are your thoughts on intermittent fasting then? Because I, I mean, to me, intermittent fasting falls into just another diet, a restrictive diet. And if, as far as like digestive health goes, if you're not eating regularly, what impact does that have when you're going those like long periods of time without food? Yeah, it's hard for me to imagine that not having a negative impact on a person's digestive health. And I will say, There are plenty of people who have digestive systems that are far less sensitive and a lot more flexible from a purely digestive standpoint. I have other concerns about intermittent fasting beyond the scope of what we're talking about. (laughs) But from a purely digestive standpoint, it's actually something that I've raised with a couple of my clients specifically who have brought this into our work together. Um, where our digestion does tends to do best, where we, you know, eat with that reliability that I'm, yes. that I'm talking about. 
Yeah. Um, there is this complex of people are really wanting to geek out on this that you can Google the migrating motor complex, which is that sort of electrical system that um, in order to go to the bathroom, you have to get the signal from the top that food's coming in. So you're going these really long stretches of time and eating in a pretty short period of time. And you're somebody who already is sort of feeling some like digestive stress and digestive complaints, it's hard for me to imagine that that isn't going to can like add, add more fuel to the fire. Yeah. Yes. hundred percent. I also have another question regarding these food sensitivity tests, because the, the test that you're speaking about makes complete sense with, you know, looking at SIBO and celiac. And then I, you know, even speaking with friends, a few clients, they take these like um, food sensitivity tests, and all of a sudden it tells them they're allergic to everything. And obviously not only can that increase risk for disordered eating, but it creates such rigidity around food. And I'm curious, like what information do you have on like the reliability of a food sensitivity test? Yeah, this is, this is in certain areas, areas, a uh, hotly debated topic um, and kind of comes at the at the um, intersection between more standard Western medical approaches to digestive health versus people who might use more alternative or integrative approaches to digestive health. Um, I will in full transparency, uh, there are aspects of less traditional um, interventions that I am that I am all for. So for instance, there's actually some really good support for using, herbal protocols and not just antibiotics in the treatment of SIBO. I'm not, I'm not totally rigid about it, but when it comes to those types of allergy tests, um, I do want to make it clear that there is no strong research to support it. So when you look at the, the largest kind of medical bodies who are going to be um, putting out like a statement about these allergy tests, they're, they're saying, this is a no-go there's no evidence behind it. And what I will say in my experience clinically, this is just speaking from my experience, I, I don't see it as helpful to clients. I have people who come in with a three-page document of their red and yellow and green foods, and they're having to eliminate this huge list of like pretty random foods and, and herbs and spices um, and then they're incredibly stressed out because it's like, well, what do I do with the yellow food? Right. And what do I, you know, and it becomes like quite, quite confusing and quite cumbersome. And I, I've never actually seen anybody who, who has come in with significant relief in eliminating all the red foods, sort of moderating their yellow foods and only eating their green foods. Um, that doesn't mean that you might not have a listener who says, this has been very helpful for me. Um, but it's not something that I, ever use in clinical practice, ever, ever. And um, what I try to do with my clients is maximize, we want to have the, the, the most liberal diet possible yes. and um, see if we can find some patterns as we're getting to know kind of the way that their symptoms show up when they show up and that there's going to be so much more to it than just eliminating this like huge list of, of foods. So there really is not, I don't feel that there is enough 
um, research behind it. And I, it's not something that I use in clinical practice. And in my experience, it's created more confusion and more harm than good. Yeah. And I've, I've experienced the same. And I also find that people will look at the list and they're like, I've never had an issue with this food, but apparently I'm sensitive to it. But I I should never eat walnuts, even though I, you know, it's like, yeah. uh, So switching gears just a bit. When we're looking at the gut microbiome of patients with anorexia nervosa after weight restoration, what changes may happen in the gut? Mm-hmm. This is a, such an interesting field of research. And I think that because there's so much interest in the gut microbiome um, right now that there's we just need to be on the lookout for the next few years to see what we continue to learn. So my my caveat before I kind of lunch in is that there is far more, far more than what we don't know than what we do know. So we we have some evidence that for individuals who suffer from anorexia nervosa, and I will say a lot of this research tends to be smaller. So the N in the research is a little bit smaller. Um, so there are some limitations to the, the current research that is out there that's very compelling and very, very interesting that the that there are impacts of starvation, right? That when a body is starved, whether it's due to anorexia or cancer or you know, some other illness, um, that it, that starvation process changes the, the gut microbiome. It changes essentially the bugs and the bacteria that live in our in our gut. And it tends to change it in a way that is problematic from a digestive standpoint. It's actually really, really interesting that it encourages the growth of bacteria that create more digestive problems. So these are bugs that are more prone to like creating gas and bloating and constipation and inflammation. Um, And so the very promising results of the research does show that as a person becomes better nourished, their gut microbiome recovers. You know, that as they become better nourished, we see a different profile in their microbiome in which there is a restoration of the more kind of helpful bacteria. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we see in the research and what what has been borne out in my clinical practice and what was actually the impetus behind my studying this more is that there never seemed to be a full a full recovery. It was like there was these lingering symptoms that not everybody, but many people were having like, oh my gosh, Marcy, I'm doing so well in my recovery. Um, I am no longer engaging in my eating disorder. I have a much better relationship to food, but I'm still having these really uncomfortable, really difficult symptoms. Nice. Um, and so what we see in the research is that the gut microbiome of somebody who's re-nourished from an eating disorder more more closely matches somebody with say IBS or digestive Mm. health issues rather than a quote unquote healthy control group. So what this tells us is one, it's quite complicated, but it may be that we aren't studying folks long enough to sort of see the full recovery of the microbiome. It may be that we, um, don't have enough information about what additional interventions might help that full recovery of the gut microbiome. That's where I am very hopeful in the next five-ish years that we're going to see more in terms of like what might be possible for us. Um, And um, 
one of the things that is a little bit difficult to grapple with is this, not so much related to the gut microbiome, is the nature of a functional gut disorder is that it can be propelled and sort of pushed along its path through eating disorder symptoms and some of those kind of mental health pieces that we mentioned that causes that kind of disorganization in eating. But it's a little bit like um, a runaway train where someone can actually um, repair their eating, but the symptoms of the functional gut disorder can remain. And that's where a lot of times people need additional support. And it may be living alongside some of these symptoms that are less severe, but still impact a person's life. Yes. Um, and that's that's one of the pieces that can be very difficult for folks is that we can have improvement and there still may be symptoms that do pop up. Yes. And I'm, I'm sure that for somebody who has been in recovery for a while and they're still experiencing extreme constipation or extreme bloating, that can feel so frustrating. Oh my um, gosh. So frustrating. So demoralizing. They're like, are you kidding me? I did all of this work and now I'm still right. Sick. And it almost is like this reminder of their eating disorder. Yeah. And that's where not everybody, uh, you know, has access to a provider. So I want to be, you know, thoughtful about this. But for me as a provider, that's where I'm like, have we turned over every rock? You know, is this somebody for whom we want to do um, a pelvic floor assessment and work with a pelvic floor PT? You know, because there are so many different causes that um, I'm, I become very interested in what are all of the different pieces that we can look at to give you as much relief as possible? Yes. And in your, you know, in your practice, have you seen clients come in with pretty extreme digestive conditions, disorders, and been able to heal from those symptoms for the most part? Yes. Yes, I have, um, which is very promising. And in fact, um, one thing that I, I want to mention, and then I'm going to answer your question more specifically is that one important thing to consider for individuals for whom this conversation is really resonating that we haven't mentioned is that I am also always gathering in my assessment whether there were symptoms that predated the eating disorder. Because often for people for whom there's this continuation of symptoms, they're the same person that was like, oh my gosh, I was five years old and always had a tummy ache or everybody in my family has some sort of digestive issue or like, you know, I, by the time I was seven, I was having all kinds of, you know, problems with my digestion. So there, so often, not always, there is the, you know, cause there's always this question of like chicken or the egg, right? That, right, that for right. this person, that there were some symptoms or a significant family history. And then there was the eating disorder and then the digestion got even worse. Then yeah. there was recovery and then there's these lingering symptoms. So that's a piece to keep in mind as well. Um, but I'm, I'm right now, you know, calling to mind a client of mine for whom that I worked with a very long time. And she had digestive symptoms from the time she was really little, long, complicated history of digestive disorders in her family. She had a long, long, long eating disorder, which from which now she says she feels fully recovered from. And the digestive stuff was a huge obstacle in her recovery. And, um, and now she's doing really well. And so, but it is, it has been, of course, 
I'm giving this in like a 30 second snapshot, (laughs) an incredible amount of work and things that she will always have to do, not only to maintain her recovery, but in terms of managing her symptoms. And, and, And a piece of that is being able to roll a little bit more easily, like when she's bloated or when she's constipated, that it's like, this happens sometimes, like, and not getting overly attached and sort of anxious about it. So yes. it's not just that she never has like an off day with her digestion, but she's able to roll with it much differently than she could in the past. Yes. And, you know, being able to identify when there is that distress and at the same time, not creating this like negative loop cycle that often happens. Well, you know, I'm bloated because of this, this, and this, and so it's it's definitely very helpful. Can you discuss the mental toll that digestive disorders may have? And maybe that, you know, speaking from your own experience and working with so many clients who've had digestive disorders. Oh, absolutely. I um this is actually such a thoughtful question. Um, because I think that when people are suffering from a digestive health condition or problematic symptoms that it is something that folks feel like they're suffering with almost like in silence It is very taboo for us to be talking about digestion, like socially or with friends or whatever. Often clients in the beginning of working with me will feel really shy or embarrassed to be talking about their poop or what's happening, you know, that, um, and I feel very comfortable with it because I do it all day, every day. Right. But it's this taboo topic that is very private and that people are often suffering alone in. And that sometimes, and I actually find that this has happened often, they've tried to address it with their primary care provider or medical provider and it not being taken really seriously or sort of like, well, take Metamucil, you know, right. or, you know, take Colace. And then that's kind of like, all that's offered up. And so there's this kind of gaslighting that I think unintentionally happens. Um, And so there are layers of pain kind of mentally and emotionally and feeling really kind of alone. And then also physically the ways that it can so significantly impact their day to day. And I, I work with clients across a huge spectrum of digestive disorders. Some of the more symptoms that we've been talking about um, to clients to uh, not just functional gut disorders, but have really severe IBD or Crohn's disease, mm. um, where the impact is so significant on their their day-to-day functioning, their capacity to feel relaxed enough to be in relationship with other yes. people, the stress of the unpredictable, you know, the unpredictable nature. And that there's been there's been a little bit of research looking at the overlap and similarities of impact on body image and sort of what it means to be in a body that feels out of control, that feels unmanageable, that feels painful to live in. Right. Like it's, it's, you know, it's hard to live chronically in a state of pain. And so, you know, for some people, they really identify this as a chronic illness or it can be disabling in some ways. Um, and actually, this is just coming to my mind. There's this beautiful book, um, challenging challenging to read or listen to, but really important called Disability Visibility. Mm. And there is um, an it's a collection of essays of disabled people speaking about their experience. And one person who writes about incontinence, which I would have never thought right, about in this right. sort of collection of essays. And it was so unbelievably written and she captures so, oh my gosh, like compellingly 
the impact that her her experience with incontinence due to a medical condition has so totally impacted every facet of her life. And so I think that for a lot of people, it can be really, really complicated, especially in terms of that, some of those more vulnerable, vulnerable pieces, intimate pieces, being able to feel present in your life, as opposed to, you know, I actually have a, a close colleague of mine who's doing much better, but had this long stretch of really severe digestive symptoms. And she said, I, I like I had to present my self in the world as a fake version of myself that I was in so much pain, but like that wasn't acceptable at my job. That wasn't acceptable, you know? So I had to almost like pretend as if I was okay. And all of that pretending, like it, it took such a toll on her right. and sort of created the sense of not being authentic. And so there can be so many layers at which that can create a lot of suffering, a lot of disconnection um, that's, that's physical, but also as we've been talking about kind of the mental and emotional tolls as well. Yes. Yeah. And this actually leads me, I mean, you, you touched upon this a little bit with the body image piece, but you know, what impact have you found digestive disorders to have on body image? And are there any tools you might recommend to some listeners who are struggling with their body image as it relates to digestive health? Yeah, I would say this is huge. I think that this is an area that I explore individually with my clients, but have been able to find relatively little on in terms of, um, the research. And so one of the things that I do and that I would invite any listener who feels like they want to, to do either on their own or with a provider is to ask themselves that question in an open-hearted, generous, loving way to make room for the fact that their own unique experience is theirs and that digestive concerns do impact body image for a lot of people. And so there are um, themes that I have heard with my clients that I mentioned briefly before, um, having a really difficult time trusting their body and feeling like their body isn't something that they know or can trust because it behaves in these ways that are confusing, that are unpredictable, that are really, really um, painful. Um, so the lack of, lack of trust is a big one. Another one is that just feeling out of control and feeling as if any, any semblance of trying to gain control over their symptoms is ineffective. Um, so there is this, this sort of lack of, um, partnering with the body. It sort of feels like you and the body are at odds with one another rather than being a team, um, and I know for some people there, there is also this struggle with particularly with constipation and with bloating and with pain in the middle that really takes a toll on body image because for many people, there is this really difficult relationship with the middles of our bodies. You know, that the idealized body is a body that is flat, an idealized, a, a middle that is flat, that yep. is toned, um, as opposed to one that has, you know, softness and roundness to it. 
Um, and, and this is a very different topic than what we've been talking about, but for people who, who maybe have um, Crohn's disease or IBD and maybe they have an ostomy or maybe they've had their digestive tract has been at the site of a lot of surgeries, um, that that brings a whole other layer in terms of how they see their body and how differently their body looks in comparison to those idealized bodies um, can be incredibly painful. Um, and, and ways in which you're thinking, thinking about some of my clients that they're trying to manage in professional settings and social settings, um, these symptoms that are deeply personal, but then can feel almost like exposing. And so, um, there's this way in which they can feel almost like this bot, this betrayal by their body. Um, so those are some of the things that I often am talking about with my clients. Um, and I'm sure there are many, many, many other other pieces that people with this lived experience would would be naming as well. I don't know if there's any that are coming to your mind from your but, work. No, the betrayal piece, especially when it comes to chronic conditions, you know, when I've spoken to people with chronic Lyme or any ways in which they feel like their body has failed them can lead to a lot of body distrust and body image concerns. But it, it is such a, a deep topic. And I feel like this in itself, a conversation around body image and digestive health could go on for, you know, mm-hmm. hours and hours. Mm-hmm. Is there a, a tool or something we can, you know, leave our listeners with if they are struggling with their body image that you like to use? I'll offer up a couple, a couple of things, um, in the hopes that it, that it may feel helpful, appreciating that it might not feel helpful. It might, it might feel like it, it falls short that, that one is that if they have the opportunity to be in relationship with other people who, who know the struggle and experience the struggle of this intersection of body image and um, digestive health to be able to have a place where they're not feeling so alone and they're not feeling like I'm this monster with you know, I'm the only person who feels this way because anytime we feel that disconnection or isolation, it's going to amplify our, our pain and our shame. Yes. Um, appreciating that that might not feel accessible to everybody or sort of how to make that happen might not feel um really obvious, but any time I, I'm very much an encourager of this, this connection and being able to have your experience reflected back to you. It's incredibly powerful. Um, and another tool that I believe in so strongly, and you might have some listeners, I'm going to say this, and some of you might be rolling your eyes, but that if you haven't started even just occasionally, practicing or listening to a self-compassion meditation that often we're looking for tools to make the pain go away or to fix the problem. And I am all for, like, if I could help all of my clients have never have a distressing symptom again, like I am, I get that. And along the way, you're going to have pain. You're going to have suffering and it's it's about developing a different way of being in relationship with yourself when it's disappointing, when it's painful, when you try something and it doesn't work, when you're still really struggling in your eating disorder and you know cognitively what you should do but you're not able to do it. It's how how do I how do I walk alongside myself? 
And that softening with self-compassion not only helps our mental health, but it also helps our nervous systems. <laughs> and our nervous systems, when we're in pain and distress, um, settling those actually is globally useful to us. And yes. so it's a tool that I am always, always advocating for and also always working on practicing for myself as well. Yes. Self-compassion is so incredibly powerful. And I, I even think as dietitians, we have this want to like fix and, and to help. And sometimes mm-hmm. it's just like being in that space with somebody and, and helping them to, you know, cultivate that self-compassion that can be so incredible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Percy, yes. thank you so, so much for joining us and where can listeners find you and work with you and, and learn more about you? Oh, thank you. Again, this has been such an enjoyable conversation for me as well. And I hope that for anybody who's listening, maybe there's one little piece in here that that was helpful for you as well. Um, as we're recording this, I am on the cusp of heading out on maternity leave and just two short days. So um, my clinical practice, I'm not able to take on new clients. Often people will hear me on a podcast and want to reach out. So I apologize. I'm not in a position to take on new clients, but I am available um, on social media and uh, at MarciRD. M-A-R-C-I-R-D. And I also have some free resources on my website that um, people can access. I have a couple of meditations that are available. And for any clinicians who are listening, I do have an online course. If this content is interesting to you that you might want to check out specifically, I have a few different online courses, but one in particular with the incredible digestive health expert, Lauren Deere, where we look at digestive disorders and eating disorders in greater detail. And then I have a a standalone workshop that's more specific to some of the kind of the hardcore science around the gut microbiome and, and things that are, that are happening in that, that realm as well. So that's a little bit about where, where um, people can find me. And I know there will be clinicians listening to this. If you are all interested in eating disorder work or digestive health, I cannot recommend your course more. And even I love the course you did around body image as well. So 10 out of 10, you know, highly recommend. And I actually, you have a free resource on your website that I've given out to a lot of clients. I think it's called, um, but I hate my body or something, a body image handout. And people have found that to be very effective as well. Oh, good. Oh, that's such good feedback. I really actually, Brittany, I really appreciate you letting me know that. Yeah, I have, I have kind of a range of goodies on there, both for clinicians and for individuals. Um, and yes, the it's, it's one on body image that says, but I hate my body cracking the code on body acceptance. And it gives a lot of resources and practices and, and, um, places that people can delve into. Clients have, I will say they love that. And just even like being able to hear other people through podcasts and blog posts. So that's definitely something to check out on Marcy's website. Awesome. Well, thank you so much and good luck with maternity leave. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks again. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Food Therapy. If you enjoyed what you heard and want to support our podcast, please subscribe, hit download, and share it with your community. We value your feedback. If you feel inspired, please leave a review. Let us know what you've learned and what you would like to hear next. 
All information about this episode will be linked in our show notes. New episodes of Food Therapy come out every Sunday, but you can stay connected with Food Therapy all week long by following us on Instagram at Food Therapy Pod. As a disclaimer, this podcast should not replace therapy or working with a registered dietitian. Thank you again, and we'll see you next week.